We have two scripture readings this morning, brothers and sisters, one from the beginning of the Bible and the other from the end of the Bible. The first one is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. We have two, as I said, readings today and a long sermon, so I hope you're ready for it. Genesis uh, 3, the first 24 verses. Well, all 24 verses. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Please turn in your Bibles now to the book of Revelation. Last chapter, chapter 22, verses 1 through 21, which again is the whole chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, 
God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Please turn now in your Bibles to the sermon text. Luke 24. Verses 13 to 27. Luke 24. And verses 13 to 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about how all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. Oh, I wanted to stop at verse 27. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We ask you to please instill the memory of this, these portions of word, of your word in our hearts. Please help us, O Lord, now. Help the one who speaks and the, one who, and the many who hear to receive your word with gladness. Help us to tuck it away in our hearts so that we might glorify you and please you in all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Long ago, at the very beginning of the biblical story, God dwelt with man in a garden. God dwelt with man in peace and in plenty. But Adam and Eve, as we know, were tempted by the adversary and they fell, plunging themselves and all of their posterity into sin and misery. 
But God did not write off his creation because he planned to send a redeemer, the promised redeemer who would be the seed of the woman and not the offspring of a man and a woman. This was the great promise given by God to mankind in Genesis 3.15 as we read. This coming redeemer, redeemer hero would crush the head of the serpent. He would reverse the effects of the fall and roll back the ruin that had come upon all of creation because of that fall. But how would all of this come to pass? God began to work out this plan of redemption. He would begin to reverse the effects of the fall by calling a man, a man named Abram, to come and dwell in a land that God would show to him. It was a land that would flow in milk and honey. But the point was that God and his people would live together again, again in peace and in plenty there in that land. In that place, he would be a God to them and they would be a people unto him as in Eden. But the Canaanites dwelt in the land at that time and Abram could only sojourn there in that promised land. He could only live in a tent. He could not do any more than dwell there as a stranger. You see, we are told in the scripture that the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. That's what God told Abraham in Genesis 15. The iniquity of the the Amorite was not yet complete. God's wrath against the wicked was storing up. God was, in effect, drawing back his bow. So the day of wrath, as well as the day of Abraham's inheritance, was still a ways off. But centuries later, God at last brought Abraham's seed, his offspring, into that place of peace and plenty. And then they did take possession of it. The people of God came into the land, but this time they did not come into it as sojourners dwelling in tents, but as conquerors seizing cities. Their day of inheritance had come. But the day of judgment for the Amorites and the other Canaanites had also come. So turn with me now, beloved, to the end of the story. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. No. Turn with me instead to the book of Joshua, chapter 21. Joshua 21. And verses 43 to 45. Joshua 21, 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. None of the promises had failed. The promises that God gave to Abraham in chapters 12, 15, and 17 of Genesis had come to pass. 
Turn two chapters later to Joshua 23 and verse 14. And now Joshua says, I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. The promised land came into the possession of Abraham's offspring. God performed his promises. Nothing promised, we are told, had failed. And so they lived, God and his people, forevermore, happily ever after. Strangely enough, however, the Bible does not end when Abraham's seed came into full possession of that land. God, we are told, performed his promise to Abraham. His offspring possessed the land. The wicked were also visited with, the, with God's wrath, but the story went on. Why? What was happening? This was the end of the world. This was the eschaton. The conquest of the land was the day of the Lord in their eyes. God had come to dwell with man once again in peace and in plenty, just as in Eden. They would be his people and he would be their God. The iniquity of the Amorite was also complete. The day of visitation had come and the wicked had been crushed and dispossessed. But God and his people did not in fact live happily ever after when the offspring of Abraham at last possessed the promised land. So what did happen next? What happened next was that death continued to reign. People still became sick. The promised land itself still produced thorns and thistles. Even though God's promises had been fulfilled, even though Abraham's seed possessed Palestine, death and disease remained. Man still extorted the produce of the earth by the sweat of his brow. And covenant breaking and violence still abounded. Read the book of Judges, the next book in the Bible sometime, to remind you that this was a period characterized by anarchy and fear and the oppression of God's people by various enemies. Though individual deliverers that the Bible calls judges or rulers were raised up by the Lord to deliver his people during that time, the personal lives of the judges displayed their imperfections and sins as much as their virtues and their strengths. Ultimately, the book of Judges is a catalog of failure. None of the judges proved to be the promised seed of the woman. So the promised restoration did not come when the Hebrews inherited Canaan. God and man did not quite yet dwell together in peace and in plenty, as they had long ago in the Garden of Eden. The longed-for restoration of all things was still yet to come. Now imagine yourselves to be back in ancient Israel during the time of King David. Later on in this story, after the period of the judges, centuries later, the Hebrews were given kings to rule them instead of judges. Now this was different. This was something new. Neither the patriarchs, nor Moses, nor Joshua, nor their judges, raised up by God, had proved to be the promised seed of the woman. None brought about the restoration of all things. But perhaps the arrival of the monarchy would usher in the peace and the plenty 
and the fellowship with God that his people had hoped for since the fall of Adam. God did give David rest on all sides from his enemies. The pagan people of the land had finally been decisively defeated by David's sword. And there was even talk of building a house for Yahweh to dwell in right in their midst. Now maybe God would dwell once again with man as he had in Eden. Well, let's turn together to 2 Samuel. Move to the right. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. The Lord speaking to David says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. These verses tell us that a son of King David would reign over God's people forever. And so after David had waxed old and been gathered to his fathers, David's son did in fact ascend to the throne. King Solomon, the wisest of the kings of the earth, now takes his seat upon the throne of David. King Solomon is also described as the prince of peace, unlike his father David, who was a man of war. And so Yahweh allows Solomon, because he is a prince of peace and not a man of war, to build his house, to build a temple. Turn with me now to 1 Kings, chapter 4. 1 Kings 4, verse 20. First Kings 4 and verse 20. Speaking of the time of Solomon, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, and they ate and drank and were happy. Now look down at verse 25. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Put yourselves back in this time, beloved. In fulfillment of God's specific promise to Abraham, the people are now numbered as the sands of the sea, and every man is under his own vine and his own fig tree. The people of God sit down, they eat, they drink, they are happy. They have peace and they have plenty. Now surely all is fulfilled. In chapters 6 and through 8 of this book, the temple is, in fact, built by Solomon. Now turn, turn to 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8, where you can see that in verses 10 and 11, the glory cloud of God's presence descends on the temple. 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11. Note that in verse 13, Solomon's apparent expectation and that of his people is that God will in fact dwell in Solomon's temple forever. Note in verse 20 that Solomon believes that he is the promised son of David who would sit on David's throne and build a house for Yahweh's name. Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple follows until verse 54. 
through 56. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched towards heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. As King Solomon said, God has now fulfilled his promises given to the fathers and unto Moses and unto David. So now, God and his people, at long last, lived happily ever after. Well, again, we know that that did not happen. But how could Solomon be wrong? The people are in the promised land. There is peace and there is plenty. The glory cloud of Yahweh's presence is, has even been described as descending on amongst them, in their midst. A apparently, God is going to dwell with man forever. And the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Mashiach, or Messiah in the Greek, is dispensing wisdom and judgment from David's throne in Jerusalem. And sacrifices for sin, brothers and sisters, we should also note, Sacrifices are of such a great mind-boggling quantity that in 1 Kings verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 5, we are told that they could not even be numbered. Can you see the significance of all of these things for God's people back then? All has been fulfilled. All is accomplished. The fall is undone. The exile of mankind from God's presence is over. It is finished, one might have thought, on that great day in the history of the people of God. Solomon said as much, but was it? Turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 1. Verses 1 through 11 of Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where, the, where they flow again, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It, is it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Is this really the same man who prayed that prayer back in 1 Kings 8? Such heights of utter jubilation have given way to complete disillusionment here. Nothing is new under the sun. 
What he means is that everything just goes on the way it always has. Although Abraham's offspring, as numerous as the sands of the sea, now filled the promised land of Palestine, although peace and plenty abounded, though each man was happy under his own vine and fig tree, and sheep and oxen for sin were there in their untold thousands. Solomon's been brought to a place by the time he pens this, this book. He's been brought to a place where he admits that everything is vanity. Nothing had really changed. The restoration of all things had never come. Sin and the last enemy, death, had not been vanquished. So this prompts the question, what was Solomon, or for that matter, the writer of the book of Joshua, what were they talking about when they claimed that all that God had promised had been fulfilled? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. In this place, the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews, he lists off this great roll call of faith. Here he extols the faith of individual saints in the Old Testament. But look down at verse 39 of Hebrews 11. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Here he says that they did not receive the promises. The people of God in the Old Testament were told in separate places that they had received what God had promised. But here we are told that they never actually received God's promises. They were, they were given the things promised to Abraham and to Moses and to David, as we saw the scriptures say so. Yet as Solomon so poignantly put it, even when the land of Palestine and all of its peace and plenty, when they had it in their possession, nevertheless, they had not received what was really promised. Nothing really new was really new under the sun. After all of those fulfillments that they enjoyed, those typical fulfillments, because the effects of sin remained, death, disease, thorns and thistles were all still there. All was still vanity. But note closely, beloved, verse 40, the beginning of verse 40 of Hebrews 11. Since God had provided something better for us. God had provided something better for us. God's promises had never failed, beloved. His performance did not fall short. Rather, his performance of his promises went beyond the promises. The performance went beyond the promise to the same degree that the substance or body which casts a shadow goes beyond the shadow. Now, beloved, transport yourselves to the days of the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. This generation of the people of God was making an error of interpretation, an error that should not by now be familiar to us. They too were looking for a kingdom of God that comes with observation. They too were looking for the types rather than the great anti-type. They too hoped for empty, vain shadows as fulfillments of God's promises to his people. They were still looking for things as fulfillments of God's promises that when once enjoyed in their fullness under Solomon were ultimately dismissed 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as vanity, as emptiness. Turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 17. Luke 17 and verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus' contemporaries then, like so many of their ancestors, and like so many interpreters today, are mistakenly looking for the fulfillment of God's ancient promises in terms of a literal land, the land of Palestine. The people of God in Jesus' day still identified the promised peace and plenty lost since Eden with a mere parcel of land and its fruits. They still just wanted to eat and drink and be merry, to be happy under their own vine and fig tree. But even on their best days, those earlier fulfillments of the promises, as we saw in Joshua's day and in Solomon's day, they were but pictures of the true fulfillment. The land of Canaan or Palestine, even when enjoyed in its fullest peace and most bountiful plenty, was, as Solomon was forced to admit, mere vanity. And even John the Baptist fell prey to mistaking the shadow for the substance, the picture for the reality. He too was wrongly looking for a kingdom that would come with observation. When the Baptist had been arrested and cast into prison, his life hanging by the slender thread of Herod's whim, he sent his associates to Jesus to find out if he could really be the promised one, the coming Jewish king of expectation. Turn to Matthew 11. Verses 2 and 3. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I mean, how could Jesus be the long-awaited Messiah who would destroy the wicked out of the land and establish the long-anticipated kingdom of peace and plenty in which God would dwell with his people forever? Here was John the Baptist, his his own anointed herald, sitting chained in a dank prison under the threat of imminent execution by one of the wicked. How could this be? Later on, even after Jesus' resurrection, brothers and sisters, even after our Lord had been raised from the dead, his own disciples still didn't understand those ancient promises or their, their true fulfillment. Remember the words of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. We had hoped he'd be the one to redeem Israel. See the woodenly literal and carnal way that they too were conceiving of the kingdom and of Israel's promised redemption. Consider Acts chapter 2 verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Try to take in the full import of what Peter just said. The sending of the Holy Spirit 
is the fulfillment of the promise of the Father. God's people so often have been tempted to look to a temple of stone, to the land of Palestine, purged of human enemies and filled with peace and plenty, like that which was lost in Eden, as the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, and in doing so have always been disappointed, even disillusioned, like Solomon. They looked for an inheritance in this world, but instead ultimately received something better, as Hebrews puts it. That is, they expected to receive the promises of God, but in receiving the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ, they instead received the God of the promises. They looked for a holy land, but received the Holy One. I am thy exceeding great reward, declared God to Abraham. The Lord is my portion, says David by the Holy Spirit. Take a moment later as part of your family devotions or private devotions to read the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. In those pages you'll see the inspired prayers and praises of Mary, the mother of Jesus, of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and of an old man, an old holy man, Simeon and an old holy woman, Anna, by the Spirit, these saints saw that Jesus Christ was personally the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham and to the fathers. And of all the hopes and expectations of Israel and of the nations, all long since exiled from God's presence in Eden. These saints in those two chapters were made to see what so many Old Testament saints did not see, and so many Jews and Christians today also do not see. These saints saw that the promises are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is personally the fulfillment of all the promises. Palestine is not. At Deuteronomy 12, verse 9, the land of Canaan is held out as the apparent source of Israel's long-awaited rest. But we just saw how even when every Israelite got his land inheritance and sat under his own vine and under his own fig tree, still they were left asking, is this it? If it is, then nothing is new under the sun. All is still vanity. But what could be more vain, beloved? That is, what could be more empty than a shadow? It was all still vain because Israel had back then only inherited the shadows. Shadows that were being cast by a coming substance. The promise of peace and rest in Canaan was a mere shadow to this statement. Come to me and I will give you rest, declares the Lord Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, says the Apostle Paul. At Ephesians 2.14. But he is not only our long lost peace himself, but the plentiful food and drink enjoyed by the people of God in Canaan, those two served as mere pictures of that true spiritual food and drink eventually to be provided by Christ alone. Remember the well, Jacob's well, located right in the promised land. Jesus encountered a Sar the Samaritan woman there. And he said to her that the water drunk from that well can never ultimately satisfy. Those who drink from it again, or who drink from it, will thirst yet again. And then what did he say? He said, 
He said, whoever will drink of the water I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The ample drink provided by the wells of Canaan were but a picture of the coming true spiritual food and drink found in Christ alone. Only his living water can slake our spiritual thirst. And the bountiful food offered by Canaan was but a shadow of Jesus Christ too. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He says in John 6.55 that he himself is the true food and the true drink. By this he means that he is the great antitype. And the flowing milk and honey of Canaan were but types of him. If anyone thirsts, Jesus said, let him come to me. So all that seemed to be promised to Israel regarding Edenic peace, rest, abundant food and drink, were really always pointing us forward to something better. That something better is Jesus Christ. And the same goes for the ancient human hope of dwelling once again with God and not simply enjoying these creature comforts. Peace and plenty. That is, the tabernacle and temple of old were but shadows too. The New Testament tells us that in Emmanuel alone, which means God with us, will we find the longed and waited for dwelling place of God with man. It tells us that God's dwelling place with man is to be found in Christ Jesus alone. Let us then look to Jesus Christ for the fulfillment of all the promises of God. The ancient promises of living with God in peace and in plenty are all fulfilled in him. We now await his return at the end of the age for the full and final restoration of all things, only begun at his incarnation. We look forward now to the consummation, to Christ's second coming in glory. But beloved, let us begin to close with this. As it was with the land of Canaan before the conquest, so it is with this world before Christ's return. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorite, brothers and sisters, again, is not yet complete. The wrath of God against the wicked is now once again storing up against the day of wrath. Once again, he is drawing back his bow. And the day of God's visitation upon the wicked will be the day of our inheritance. When the iniquity of the wicked is complete, then the last of God's elect will, will have been perfected. Their wanderings in the desert will have purged them of their remaining dross, and they will be ready to inherit the new heavens and the new earth. God himself will drive out the wicked who have defiled the land, that is, who have defiled this earth, and he will give it into the possession of his pilgrims. If any land promise of the Old Testament has a physical fulfillment, brothers and sisters, it is the new heavens and the new earth. That is the only promised land that yet remains to be delivered into the hands of the people of God. They had back then, in obtaining the promised land, Canaan or Palestine, only inherited pictures of what was promised. As if you yourselves were promised a great estate on a Monday and would come into that estate on a Friday but on the, the Wednesday in the middle you were granted a brochure with pamphlets and blueprints of what, what, the, what that inheritance was to look like when you finally obtained it. 
It's like that. It would be, in the end, mere vanity and emptiness. You would not be satisfied with those blueprints, with those pictures. We need to understand, beloved, that the Bible reveals that the Old Testament promises of God are fulfilled in our triune gods, giving us himself in the environment of a new heaven and a new earth. Only in the eschaton will we enjoy the complete fulfillment of his promises to us in consummate fullness. And only then, beloved, will the last enemy finally be vanquished by Jesus Christ and because of the cross. Because of his cross, death itself will finally be cast into the lake of fire. Death, disease, sickness, frustration and emptiness, vanity and want, only then will all these things be things of the past. But if anyone's name, as we read this morning, is not found written in the book of life, he too will be thrown into the lake of fire. So be not among the people of the land in the day of the Lord's visitation. For the day of his people's fully and finally coming into their inheritance of those promises is also the day of judgment. So repent and believe in him and so be found safe in him when that day of wrath comes. Put all your trust in him in whom alone are all the promises of God, yea and amen. And in whom alone is the only consolation of Israel and the only hope for the nations. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. Help us to cling to them, O Lord our God. But help us first to understand them. Help us to understand that all your promises are yea and amen in Christ and in Christ alone. Help us to set all of our faith in him and all of our heart's treasures in him as well. And in his name we pray.